This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today, I will be speaking with John A. Kellum, MD, MCCM, on kidney recovery after acute kidney injury following critical illness. Dr. Kellum is Vice Chair for Research and Professor of Critical Care Medicine, Medicine, Bioengineering, and Clinical and Translational Science at the University of Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I would like to first uh, thank Dr. Kellum for joining us on this podcast and to make sure that we get through logistics and talk about any disclosures. Sure. Thanks. Uh, and thanks for having me. I, I think, uh, you know, this is a, a, certainly a topic that is rapidly uh, developing and expanding in the, in the uh, critical care arena and certainly something that I like talking about. I, I think, you know, my disclosures sort of fall into maybe three categories. There are certainly companies that ha- that I that I consult for that have been trying to develop both diagnostic and therapeutic devices and, and therapies for, you know, for this problem. Uh, and and uh, we may touch on, you know, some of their technologies, although uh, probably not very much since uh, some of those things are still far off in the future. My lab has also, you know, developed some IP as well that has been licensed to some of these companies, and it's conceivable we might touch on some of that as well, although that's probably even farther off in the future. Uh, And then finally, I think something that's probably more close in time is the uh, the companies that have you know devices and therapies for you know acute kidney injury and there is some suggestion that maybe certain types of renal replacement therapy for example uh, might result in differences in recovery and and I consult for some of those companies as well so I think that probably covers it. Okay, sounds great. Thank you for doing that. Well, let's get started because there are a lot of topics. So, kidney dysfunction something that happens a lot in the uh, critical illness world. We all deal with it. And uh, I think um, we can sort of set the parameters for this discussion by first talking about how injurious this is to each individual that has critical illness and what that means for them in the long term, you know, as somebody who survives critical illness. Could you perhaps uh, help me uh, set out some of the statistics for that? Thank you for asking that. I, I think there is um, certainly a lot of evidence that acute kidney injury is associated with significant reductions in uh, in survival and and uh, increases in morbidity uh, as well. And and I think that we've sort of understood that for some time. I think uh, in intensive care, we we know that when kidney failure occurs uh, or even milder forms of acute kidney injury occur, there's a there's an impact on uh, morbidity and mortality. I think what's potentially new is that there's a pretty significant difference between recovery by uh, of, of kidney function by hospital discharge and what sort of happens to those patients over the course of the next year or so and patients who don't recover. So if you recover kidney function, 
versus not recovering kidney function, there's about a threefold difference in mortality uh, at one year. And so that's, that's pretty dramatic. And so one of the things I think makes recovery so important to focus on is just how much that is, in essence, in our purview for both reducing further injury to the kidney, as well as, uh, as we'll discuss, uh, some methods to try to facilitate recovery. Let me explore that a little bit more with you and um, have a more detailed definition of recovery. When you are talking about renal recovery, that might not be the same thing as somebody just looking at like one particular lab value or a measurement. So can, can, can you um, teach us more about that? Yeah, I think that's a, a, a very reasonable point. We're reluctant to call people recovery until they've had a really durable, uh, stable return of function. And we really can't assess that very well. You know, even in the hospital, it's really where the patient ends up uh, at a time, you know, after the the illness has really occurred. Um, We use as a surrogate for that what the patient looks like at hospital discharge, but even that has some degree of of inaccuracy. But certainly where the patient is while they're still in the ICU, uh, even if they have returned to normal renal function, we don't generally think of that as as recovery because uh, that uh, reversal, if you will, of their renal dysfunction might be lie, uh, and there's experimental evidence and some clinical evidence to support this. It might mask what's really going on inside the kidney. So when we use the term recovery, I think we should reserve that word uh, for uh, evidence of recovery of kidney function at a, at a fairly remote time point, whether that's 30 days or 90 days, uh, I think is up for debate. But it's certainly not what happens, you know, two or three days after acute kidney injury when the patient's still in the in the hospital or even in the ICU. Got it. And what is your gold standard measurement for renal function recovery? <laughs> well, that's that's a good question. Um, I, I think there isn't really a, a gold standard. So I think the first thing we have to uh, appreciate is that when we talk about kidney function. We, we use it as, as sort of code for glomerular function, but of course the kidney has lots of other functions and we don't generally assess the tubular function. We don't tend, generally assess its, its endocrine functions. Um, but for even for GFR, even for glomerular function, static measures of, of glomerular function are, are generally applied. So we look at a patient's serum creatinine and we may uh, put it into a, an equation to estimate the GFR or we, measure, may, we may measure the GFR directly. Um, but neither of those things tell us anything about the patient's ability to respond to a, uh, a stress such as a protein load. And when we look at that, when we do functional uh, renal reserve testing, as has been done in a, in a few studies, we recognize that uh, a patient's resting GFR uh, might be normal, but their uh, ability to increase their GFR in response to a protein load might be abnormal. And that loss of functional renal reserve um, uh, may be the earliest sign uh, that the patient is developing chronic kidney disease. So we don't really have a good gold standard. There's no real good standard ways of measuring recruitable function, uh, so to speak. And uh, even our measures of uh, static function are often uh, quite limited because we rely on on serum creatinine. Since you since you brought this up, I think from a critical care standpoint, it's also important to point out that um, creatinine is 
determined in large part by uh, muscle mass and muscle mass uh, decreases in critical illness. And so if a patient spends three weeks in the hospital and two of those weeks in the ICU and they leave the hospital with a third less muscle mass, the creatinine that they leave the hospital with relative to the creatinine they came in with um, will not be the same measure of renal function. And so we have to put all of that into our equation uh, as well when we're trying to assess, you know, what's really happened to the patient. Right. Yeah, that one number is actually very dynamic, isn't it? It's a combination of various things that are happening with that patient. Uh, so you were talking about how um, the lack of kidney recovery uh, bodes poorly for these patients. And I wanted to try to get you to expand on that as well. What, what are the long-term consequences of renal non-recovery? And do you have a suspicion of what it is about that? that worsens people's outcome? Yeah, I, I, I think um, we're really just beginning to understand uh, what, that's, what that signal is due to. And, it, it, and the evidence so far uh, really supports three um, specific risks. One is cardiovascular disease, which of course we've known for a long time is uh, influenced by kidney function uh, in chronic kidney disease, um, where patients go on to develop cardiovascular disease. Uh, if they develop uh, uh, chronic kidney disease, uh, then patients who don't by, by, a huge, uh, by a huge factor. In fact, chronic kidney disease is a bigger risk factor for cardiovascular events uh, than any of the Framingham risk factors by themselves. So it's, it's bigger than um, smoking, it's bigger than hypertension, it's bigger than hypercholesterolemia. So it is an extremely important factor. And of course, patients who don't recover kidney function after an episode of AKI, uh, you know, have sort of de facto CKD if that persists, you know, by, by, by 90 days. The uh, the other area is that patients who have developed acute kidney injury, and in some cases, whether they appear to have recovered kidney function or not, uh, are at increased risk for infection. And um, there's some hints as to why that may be true. Uh, neutrophil function is impaired during episodes of, of acute kidney injury through a variety of different mechanisms. And then that's persistent um, for some time after the episode of AKI for reasons we don't completely understand. Uh, one of the mediators of that is a uremic toxin called resistin. And resistant levels go up in acute kidney injury uh, and as well as other forms of critical illness. And then the kidney is responsible for clearing resistant. And when the kidney doesn't work, resistant levels remain quite elevated. And they're also not cleared very well by standard hemodialysis. So um, this is a, a uremic toxin, which um, is at least partly responsible for the neutrophil dysfunction, which occurs in uh, patients on, on chronic uh, hemodialysis. And then the third area is that, and we've only just really begun to understand this, but patients who have developed an episode of AKI are at increased risk for developing another episode of AKI. So recurrent episodes of AKI appear to be much more common than we had previously understood. Um, those three factors, uh, cardiovascular events, infection, including sepsis, uh, and um, a development of further episodes of AKI really do explain, I think, a large portion of why these patients have uh, such a poor outcome uh, over the ensuing um, months after hospital discharge. Wow. Well, now that we've scared everybody, um, let's talk a little bit more about the recovery process to make it more optimistic. Uh, how biologically does 
renal recovery occur, like on a you know cellular and like histolic, histological level? Right. So, so I think it's important to understand that this story really begins with the injury itself. So um, we don't understand that much about how the kidney gets injured and how that injury is different in different etiologies of, of kidney injury. So, for example, how sepsis is different from cardiovascular surgery or cardiothoracic surgery or how it's different uh, from a nephrotoxic exposure. Um, and of course, many of our patients have multiple different etiologies that are coexisting. Uh, so it, it's even more more complex. Um, but we know that sometimes cells are, are become dysfunctional and the kidney, kidney function decreases and yet cell viability uh, within the kidney is not uh, significantly compromised. So some of recovery is simply uh, that the, um, the insult is over quick enough that it doesn't result in any long lasting damage to the kidney. Now, there's a tendency, I think, both in our field, in critical care, as well as in nephrology, to sort of view this as uh, as pre-renal azotemia. And I think that's a mistake. I, I think that uh, we know that experimentally, you can induce kidney injury in a variety of different ways that resolves very rapidly without long-term sequela. Um, and it's not coming from uh, a pre-renal insult. It's coming from a direct toxic insult because you've induced it experimentally. So I think the, the converse is 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 not true either that you can't look at a patient who's recovered quickly and say oh well that that didn't matter that was just a, an episode of prerenal acetemia. The second thing is that uh, if the kidney uh, cells and we're mostly talking about tubular epithelial cells now if they are damaged so that they are not just it's not just a question of function but there's true damage within the kidney um, sometimes the kidney cells can repair uh, and if they're not terribly damaged, uh, they can repair themselves and, and survive in situ. However, the kidney, like other epithelium, tends to be relatively uh, quick to shed dysfunctional cells. So cells that are not dead, but, but, are, but have been damaged uh, are shed from the kidney. Uh, they lose cadherin connections and they drop off, they slough off uh, from the basement membrane. Uh, and, um, and you have essentially a denuded tubular uh, epithelium that has to now uh, regenerate. And the way it regenerates is that cells that are still viable uh, de-differentiate, proliferate, uh, and then re-differentiate to um, repair the, the defect of lost cells. Now, of course, they can't always do that. And, and there can be many reasons why that doesn't occur. Um, one reason is that there's such extensive injury in a particular nephron that there are no viable cells that remain or insufficient viable cells that remain uh, and the cells cannot proliferate. The other possibility though, is that sometimes the injury is persistent enough that the cells never feel, never get out of cell cycle arrest, essentially. They never reach a point where they can proliferate. Um, and in those situations, they develop more of a senescent phenotype and they bring in macrophages and um, particularly macrophages that are polarized at, at, toward M1. Uh, and you get a you get a, a pro-fibrotic phenotype that occurs. And, and this maladaptive repair, as it's sometimes called, uh, is the only real solution that, that, uh, that those cells have. So this process of repair and, and regeneration 
um, uh, goes on all the time in our uh, epithelial cells at a, at a small level because it's part of the natural process of cellular replacement and involves many of the same genes that are involved in embryologic development. So we understand a little bit about uh, how this occurs. In the setting of kidney injury, it occurs in, in, a, in a much faster pace and in a much wider scale. And, uh, and sometimes it doesn't occur. And that's when we're left with a case of uh, either incomplete recovery or, or no recovery at all. Right. In the talk that you gave at the Society of Critical Care Medicine's uh, annual meeting in February, uh, you had mentioned that there also was a difference between early and late recovery. Can, can, can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I, I think... Um, it's hard to know what exactly goes on biologically because we don't have um, tools that really allow us to assess this in patients. But one of the ways to think about it is that if you recover rapidly and completely, you know, you resolve your kidney dysfunction and then that goes on to true recovery, it might be because the cells weren't damaged enough um, to be to require um, you know, for the cells to actually be lost and then require uh, that regenerative process that I talked about, or that there's only just a few defects that are quickly filled and uh, the kidney can go on to recover uh, function uh, in a setting that it has replaced the, um, the cells that are lost. But it's tricky because the kidney has this capacity we were talking about earlier to increase the GFR. Uh, now, it does that in response to a protein load, but it may also do that simply because it's, some nephrons have been lost and the remaining nephrons can hyperfilter. And that hyperfiltration that occurs can mask the recovery process. In other words, they can or appear to be recovery when recovery really hasn't occurred. So imagine, for example, that you lose 30% of your nephron mass. You can make up for that in the remaining kidney and your function will be Will, will be normal, but you still have lost 30% of your nephron mass. Now, if you reach a threshold where that hyperfiltration becomes pathologic, then those patients can go on to develop uh, nephrosclerosis, et cetera. This is what happens in diabetic kidney disease, for example. But it may also be true that um, you don't develop any long-term sequela, but you're just down 30% of your nephrons. The next kidney injury episode that occurs, you're starting from a lower baseline and you're um, that much closer to the point of not being able to recover. So I think all of that stuff is sort of happening. So sometimes when you see these late recoveries, is it really true that the patient has recovered or is it just true that their function has returned in remaining nephrons that are still viable, whereas other nephrons have been lost. And without measuring functional renal reserve in those patients, we really don't have a good way uh, to, um, to assess that. How do, you, how do you measure the functional renal reserve? Is, uh, is there an easy or standard way to do that, or is that very much a lab thing? Well, it's a research tool at the moment because it's not standardized for clinical purposes, but it's not terribly complicated. It's it's a matter of taking a protein load in, and there's some controversy as to whether or not plant proteins are as effective as um, as as animal protein. And so, typically, people uh, will eat hamburgers, for example, as a way of stimulating uh, GFR. Plant protein may work, and some studies have shown that it can, but um, but it's been a little bit more difficult to get um, a standard response. Aha, uh -huh. this is really interesting. And uh, when, when you were talking about the late recovery, the, the fact that maybe it is just 
sort of the the the, the remaining efforts rising to the occasion. It, it made me also think about another factoid you mentioned in your talk about uh, recrudescence of uh, renal dysfunction during the recovery process. That it, it sometimes is an ebb and flow. And uh, you were talking about how in certain people with um, uh, predictive factors that they actually could temporarily lose renal function and then go on to recover a little bit more. Is, is that right? Well, I think what you're referring to is a, a study that we did in a, a, a several thousand patients, um, I think about 15,000 patients, uh, 16,000 patients that we looked at, the sort of natural history, if you will, of uh, renal recovery after an insult. And what we found was a little bit surprising to us. Um, first, we found that, that the majority of patients, about two-thirds of those patients, recovered renal function. Again, I use the word recovery, in it, and I'm really referring to this reversal of renal dysfunction. So they had this early reversal of the dysfunction that occurred within a few days of their kidney injury. But a large portion of those patients, who, who of the two-thirds that, that had the early reversal, Another half of or so of those patients or more had an episode where they where they lost function again. And it's it's not clear whether that is because the patients were exposed to another cause of, of AKI. And so you can imagine how that might happen, right? You come in with sepsis and then uh, a few days later, your antibiotics are changed because a resistant organism is identified and you're treated with a nephrotoxic uh, antibiotic. And so you've had the original insult, but then now you have another insult. And then maybe a few days later, uh, someone decides that um, you need a dye study for a contrast study for a CT scan or something, and you have another insult. Uh, and so we can understand that these things do happen. And in critical illness, they, they probably happen very frequently. Um, but there's even a more sinister um, biologic explanation for this. And it comes back to what I was talking about with renal reserve, that um, the kidney can appear to recover by simply increasing its uh, GFR and the remaining functioning nephrons. But there may still be damage that goes on to progress. And as the, particularly as the cardiac output comes down and the sort of overall hyperdynamic state in a, in a critically ill patient resolves, the GFR may then go down again so that the creatinine goes up. And so as we look at these patients, you know, in large data sets is the study that I was mentioning. It's hard, it's impossible really to tease those different scenarios out. But, um, but, but at the bedside, I, I think we do see patients who fit those various phenotypes. Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the more we understand and the, the more we understand that there are so many different variables involved, it's only going to help us take better care of our patients. Um, let me ask you about something else about renal dysfunction and renal injury that um, I've covered in these podcasts previously, uh, biomarkers. So biomarkers are hot. People talk about them. They correlate with injury, but do their shifting levels predict uh, renal recovery, for example? Well, so, you know, it's a big topic, right? There are lots of different biomarkers. Um, biomarkers each have their own test characteristics. They uh, have uh, unique biologic properties that, um, in terms of what they measure. So if you take a, a particular example of uh, one that's available in the United States, uh, it's FDA approved as a, goes by the trade name Nefrocheck, which is a 
a combination of two biomarkers, tissue inhibitor and metalloproteases 2, and insulin-like refactor binding protein 7. This is a marker of kidney stress. It's not a marker of damage. It's not a marker of recovery or non-recovery, uh, but it's a marker of stress. And if you have a lot of stress and the stress goes on for a long period of time, those kidneys really do get damaged. And the extent to which they're damaged obviously influences their recovery. So they're all sort of related, but the stress marker itself um, is a marker of stress. And you can have circumstances where the stress goes away, but yet there's still injury. Uh, you can have situations where there's stress, but it, the, the patient is resistant to the stress in terms of not developing um, you know, damage itself, particularly if they have uh, you know, good baseline kidney function. So you know, that's sort of how that marker works. There are some other markers which are being developed and have been, you know, talked about in, in some uh, research forums to date that look at measuring the biologic process of recovery, what we were just talking about a moment ago in terms of, of this um, senescent phenotype of cells and bringing in fibroblasts and uh, uh, macrophages that, that uh, um, result in fibrosis. These markers um, have the potential to be uh, recovery biomarkers, but they're very different from the markers that are currently available to assess AKI. So there is some possibility that biomarkers as a group could help predict recovery. Not the ones that are used right now, but the ones that you're studying. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's the uh, uh, the research that's underway currently is focused on trying to identify patients that will recover. Uh, and you can think about why that has a, a number of important clinical um, applications. So one of them obviously is, um, you know, should I, uh, you know, provide renal replacement therapy for a particular patient. One of the things that influences that decision more than anything else is my sense of whether they'll recover renal function. So I have a patient who's in very, you know, severe renal failure, but they're, they don't have an emergent indication for dialysis right now. They're sort of tolerating the, uh, the insult. And if I, if I know that recovery is imminent, then that's not a good candidate to start renal replacement therapy in. But if I think that they're going to be in this state for several days and fluid overloaded and acid-based dysfunction, et cetera, et cetera, um, and ultimately they are going to have to be treated with renal replacement therapy, then there's probably little reason to delay. And so um, uh, understanding that would be very valuable to us clinically right now. Yeah, I could see that. Um, let me ask you about the ways of promoting recovery. And I wanted to ask you that question in two different um, time points, I guess. Where we are right now in you know, our ICU world uh, in terms of our capabilities and uh, the ways that you envision us being able to do this in the near future. Yeah, and I think it's appropriate to break it into those groups, as you say, because um, unfortunately, right now, we, we don't have very many things that, uh, well, let me say it differently, because I think we do have a lot of things we can do, but they're in the category of um, supportive care and trying to avoid further injury. So if you go back to this conceptual model that we talked about in terms of how the kidney is injured, and then how that kidney recovers, 
You can imagine that if you insult the kidney repeatedly in that process of recovery, that you will drive the kidney down the maladaptive repair fibrosis um, uh, direction and will inhibit the kidney's ability to have a normal repair. Um, so if every time the kidney wants to, um, you know, proliferate and, and, and uh, redifferentiate uh, cells, we, we give it another nephrotoxic insult uh, and kill off any cells that are available to recover or just keep them out of cell cycle. Uh, that's not going to end well for the, for the kidney. So I think uh, one of the biggest things that I've seen change in the last quarter century of rounding in ICUs and taking care of critically ill patients is we're not as cavalier as we once were about kidney function. Uh, you know, I think maybe a quarter of a century or so ago, we might have said things like, well, this patient's kidneys are down and, you know, uh, we don't need to pay so much attention to the nephrotoxic drugs we're using or things like that um, because they're already in renal failure. And I think we've stopped saying that, thankfully. I think we've um, we've learned that there is a recovery potential, and we can damage that recovery potential uh, by continuing to um, to use nephrotox. Now, obviously, sometimes you don't have a choice; you're you're forced to use therapies. But even then, uh, the care at which you you know, use those medications by levels and things like that. And the decisions that you make um, probably do have meaningful effect on patients' recovery potential. And I think we now have that in the forefront of our thought process where we might not have, uh, you know, some years ago. The second aspect, obviously, though, is, is could we uh, do something active as opposed to just protecting the patient from getting further insults? Could we do something active to try to modulate this recovery process. And you have to be careful about that, right? Because biology is, is usually smarter than physicians, right? So interfering with biologic processes is, by human intervention, is often uh, a perilous uh, enterprise. But occasionally we know things that the kidney doesn't know. Uh, like, for example, we know whether or not additional nephrotoxic agents like chemotherapy, et cetera, is planned. And we might be able to continue to stimulate the kidney to hunker down and not try to repair itself while we're continuing active interventions like nephrotoxic chemotherapy, for example. And then tell the kidney, wake the kidney up and say, it's okay to proliferate now because we know that the insult is over. And you can imagine a variety of different scenarios where that may be true. And we know things then that the kidney wouldn't be able to sense uh, from the environment because it, it doesn't know the, you know, it doesn't know the cardiac surgery schedule and we do. So I think this is where interventions uh, in the future will be focused on in trying to modulate this process of repair in both directions, uh, you know, holding it back when there's more planned insults to the kidney and pushing it forward when those insults are, are now over. That sounds very exciting. Sounds, sounds like a, a pretty tough area to uh, be doing research in, but I'm glad that there are people like you who are driving that forwards. Um, what about the other organs? I, I, I know that um, we've been talking a lot about the kidney, but obviously people also worry about damage to the liver, to the gut, to the lungs. And 
none of what we've been talking about can sort of be journalized, but do you have any thoughts about any of the other organs that um, sustain damage during critical illness? Well, you know, I think there are some themes that are generalizable, right? Uh, I think one of the themes is, is uh, which is critical to us in the intensive care community is that we we, we have on our mind uh, the fact that it's not sufficient simply to be able to discharge the patient alive from the ICU. We want the patient to be able to return to their normal organ function because that allows them to return to their normal lifestyle. Um, you know, that should be our goal. And so I think that uh, we didn't used to talk about this uh, aspect uh, very much in intensive care. And I think in recent years, it's become a very uh, large part of what we talk about and research about and, and care about. And I think it's in our patient's best interest to make sure that uh, recovery is, is the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal isn't simply survival, but rather um, a return to as much of the baseline function as we can. And so I think, um, you know, some of the things I've talked about with respect to the kidney, avoiding further insults and, and things like that are, are generalizable across uh, other organ systems. Um, and of course, there's organ system crosstalk too. I mean, to the extent that the kidney is not working means that other organs um, will, will work less well you know, as well. Um, so, and that goes, you know, in the opposite direction as well. If my heart doesn't recover, my kidneys won't work as well, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think there are, um, you know, general themes that are relevant. And I think at the, at this, at the cellular level, although there are significant differences, for example, in the way in which the kidney uh, recovers from in injury versus, for example, the way the lung recovers from injury. The kidney doesn't have to contend with very much in the way of cellular infiltrate uh, the way that the lung does. The lung becomes, in an ARDS patient, becomes loaded with neutrophils, for example, that have to be cleared. Uh, the kidney doesn't have that problem, but it has a different set of problems that it has to deal with. And, um, and so the, these differences, I think, are important, but we have to balance you know, the various organs and their functional recovery and their true cellular recovery uh, as part of our overall management strategy. And, and the more we understand about that, I think the better we can take care of our patients. I really like it that you were able to bring this back to the big picture, which is the whole patient and that they need to recover to resume their previous level of life. And I think that is such an important concept for, for us as modern day crit critical care specialists. So I really appreciate you bringing, bringing it back to that and to remind all of us about that. Having said that, I think this has been a really fascinating discussion about uh, kidney injury, the potential of recovery, how that happens. And I'm excited that there are some clear goals that you have for trying to figure out how to do that better in the future. So, Dr. Kellum, thank you so much again for taking the time to talk about all of this. And I'm sure that we'll hear more in the future about the next uh, advances. Uh, this is going to conclude yet another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. For the iCritical Care podcast team, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare Corporation. When you choose Baxter for your CRRT program, you're not only choosing true patient-focused treatment with industry-leading CRRT technology, you're also selecting a partner dedicated to optimizing your clinical success in treating patients with acute kidney injury. 
Our commitment to you starts with a program individualized to your facility's needs and provides complete support every step of the way. For more information, visit us at www.renalacute.com. Ludwig Lenn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Altabates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University, where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient-family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.